Welcome to the Energy Environment Economy Podcast, a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. My name is Ann Geisinger. I'm Executive Director at EBC and your host for this episode. Here at Energy Environment Economy, we talk about the business of the environment from offshore wind to stormwater management, brownfields redevelopment to environmental justice, the list goes on. Today, I am very pleased to introduce two inspiring environmental justice and social justice advocates, Dr. David Cash, Regional Administrator for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, Region 1, and Carrie Bowie, Founding Director of Browning Green Space and Managing Director and Founder of Masada Partners. Dr. Cash has spent his career in public service harnessing science, innovative policy, and participatory decision-making to solve challenges and seize opportunities at the intersection of environment, economy, and equity. He spent a decade in Massachusetts state government and was the dean of the John W. McCormick Graduate School of Policy and Global Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Mr. Bowie grew up in a fence-line community in Alabama and brings 25 years of experience connecting communities, companies, and government. He spent over a decade at Texas Instruments before serving in a variety of roles in Massachusetts state government and then founded Masada Partners in 2015 and Browning the Green Space in 2020. It is my honor to welcome you both to the podcast. Great to be here. And how would you guys like to be addressed? Would you like to go by Dr. Cash, David, Carrie, Mr. David's Bowie? fine. David, Carrie. David and Carrie, great. You can call me David, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be honored to be called Carrie. Great, <laughs> wonderful. So let us start off with learning a little bit more about both of your backgrounds and a little bit about um, why you want to be here today and what you want to talk about. So I will start out hearing a little bit from David on his background. Sure. So uh, as you noted, I was in uh, state government for 10 years and before that, um, graduate school. But even before that, I was a teacher uh, of science, um, uh, high school science and middle school science and taught a lot about environmental policy. And there's just such interest from kids on uh, engaging with uh, understanding how science worked. And actually, they were really sophisticated in understanding how science might or might not influence policy and decision-making. And I became more interested in that. That's why I went back to graduate school. And as I've been working in this field in the last, um, you know, 30 years or so, it's become really clear to me that questions of justice and equity are so deeply intertwined with questions of environmental protection, climate protection, that they can't be separated out. And in fact, there's a long history of them being separated out. And I think the result has been policies that don't ultimately solve the challenges that, that we want to solve on the environment side and the climate side, and that the only way to solve those in a fundamental, sustainable way is to integrate justice in the way that we think about this, and then and get the voices at the table that need to be at the table, have inclusionary, participatory decision-making in a way that the expertise, knowledge, and lived experience of people who are most impacted by climate change. We know it's low-income and disadvantaged communities that are hit first and worst uh, with, with climate impacts. We have their voices and their expertise at the table. We'll do a much better job collectively following their lead to to put in place the kind of solutions that we need to put in place. Great. Thanks, David. Gary, let's hear a little bit about you. Yeah. Um, so I'm originally from uh, Anniston, Alabama. Um, like you said, as a fence line community, I literally could look out my bedroom window and maybe 10 feet, definitely less than 10 yards away was a fence. And that fence separated us from uh, land and uh, a Monsanto uh, plant. And so I think it's the I think it's the plant where they actually invented PCBs. 
So polychlorinated biphenyls. Unfortunately, uh, when I was a elementary school student, they cut through the toe of a landfill and those PCBs slipped uh, out into the surrounding neighborhood. We wouldn't have found out if it wasn't for the yes, Alabama Corollary of MassDP, the Alabama Department of Environmental Management. And so uh, my hometown was the you know, last class action lawsuit, you know, for Johnny Cochran, uh, post OJ. And so in addition to that, you know, we got the hydrogen sulfide coming out of the plant. The Army's chemical warfare school was in my hometown. So Fort McClellan before the base relocation, reauthorization and closure act or BRAP. Uh, and we actually had a chemical incinerator built not too far from that same Monsanto plant. So you know, I've seen all of these different things, uh, but I came up here for school, you know, from Alabama, I uh, did school at MIT and studied environmental engineering. Uh, before environmental engineering was cool, I think it uh, wasn't even an accredited program when I started. And so I, I think I was in the first like three or four years of uh, people that graduate uh, with a degree in environmental I'm pretty sure you made it cool, Carrie, right? It was, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it, was, it, was, it was cool. So got to learn. <laughs> Stuff, but it was so much fun. Uh, you know, I worked, you know, my internship sophomore year was on the Boston Harbor cleanup project. And so getting to go out to, you know, Quabbin, but also getting to see, you know, the, you know, Deer Island and the, and the sludge, but also getting to, you know, meet, you know, Governor Dukakis, you know, talking about, you know, the policy side of it. And, you know, the, the guy from Kidder Peabody who floated the bun for, you know, the, you know, as we think about the, you know, anaerobic digesters out on Deer Island and, uh, you know, Leo Mazzoni, the, the judge who, who did it, this was a super, you know, cool deal. Paul Levy was at, had just left, I think, the MWRA. And so he taught a course and I, that got me like super excited about, you know, doing this work and you now eventually even intern at the Mass Water Resource Authority. So I've always been into uh, that work. Uh, now it was mostly water work here at MIT. I went to University of Michigan for grad school. I think that was more ground uh, water and like subsurface uh, work. So, you know, worked at, um, it was actually the National Center for Integrated Bioremediation Research and Development at uh, Oscoda, an old Air Force base where a DC-10 had, or, and had gone up and crashed so they knew how much uh, fuel was in it. And so instead of cleaning it up, they said, let's let nature clean it up. And so they use it as a study site. And so got to do that work. And then lastly, to sort of round out that environmental piece, uh, I actually took a job at Texas Instruments and I worked on an air systems pollution sort of team. And so I, I, I feel like I'm, I know all of the media. So water, land, air, uh, I'm pretty, I know enough to be dangerous. I uh, did all of those spaces. And then when I came back here uh, to go to school, really, I came back up here to see about a girl. And now I'm married and I have two daughters. But when I came back, I did business school at Sloan. And when I came back, uh, there is a big push uh, from our past, one of our couple past presidents to really think about clean energy. And so I was one of the co-presidents of the MIT Sloan uh, Energy and Environment Club. Uh, and you know, as we launched the MIT Energy Conference, and so got to see all of that stuff happen and uh, ended up uh, going to work for Governor Patrick, uh, you know, afterwards. So it was a non-routine route out of business school, but I did that and got to work at the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs 
where I got to meet uh, Dr. David Cash. He was doing policy work there. And then five or six years later, I was down at MassDEP doing brownfields, environmental justice, food policy. And I actually got to see Dr. David Cash again because he was a commissioner. So, he just uh, comes around. That's he's awesome. my boss. I can't, awesome. I can't, I can't seem to shake it. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I, will, I will leave it at that. But that's sort of what I'm doing. And out of that work came Brown into Green Space. But I'm happy to tell you a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, great. Great. So um, when we're talking about um, some of the things that you guys are focusing on, so environmental justice, climate justice, social justice, there's a lot of definitions there. And I think that those words mean different things to different people. So um, I don't know, if David, do you have some ideas there around how would you define some of those terms, environmental justice? Sure. I, so, so, so I'm going to be a good government employee and good. bureaucrat, and I'm going to read the EPA definition of it, but then I want to talk more nuanced about it because it goes well beyond this. So EPA defines environmental justice as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. So, I mean, that's a that's a great definition. It kind of covers all the bases, but was it what it doesn't capture is the lived experience, kind of what Carrie was talking about growing up in a fence line community and the fear and the risks and the grieving of loss in that uh, in those kind of situations. And and I also think uh, so so um, you know there's there's the very personal experience of those communities who've been overburdened by pollution. And they've been overburdened by a legacy of um, systemic racism and systemic um, ways that low-income people have been disempowered. And so we see things like redlining of 100 years ago, redline maps in many New England cities map on to currently where there are lead service lines. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Even though the communities are no longer, uh, you know, only black, only white, they've shifted around. Still, there's this, there's that legacy. There's a legacy that, for example, black children in the United States face asthma rates that are twice as high as white children. That 73% of all fossil fuel plants in this country are in communities of color or low-income communities, right? So there's, this, and the list can go on and on and on. And each of those statistics has within it families who are struggling, families who have uh, insult upon insult upon insult of different types of pollution, not to mention all of the other cumulative impacts of other social and economic problems. So, um, and when you think about kind of righting wrongs, who is it that has uh, permitted those fossil fuel plants? Who is it that permitted Monsanto? It's EPA and our state regulatory partners. So there's a lot of work that we need to do to uh, to right those wrongs in the past. How we do permits now, how we fund um, incentive programs now, who benefits and how did they benefit? I mean, another way you don't, you know, we often think about environmental justice or climate justice about the bads, but it's also about the distribution of the goods, right? So we think about economic development, particularly like in an area like Massachusetts or Boston, where, you know, pharma, IT, biotech, particularly at, at uh, Carey's alma mater at MIT, real driver of economic development, right? But if you look at a place like uh, Kendall Square, the low-income and black and brown communities that lived there 30 or 40 years ago did not benefit 
from that boom. In fact, one could say, you know, we're hurt by it because there was a huge amount of gentrification and displacement. So I think it's incumbent on us, at least in government, to be thinking about how can the, how can the benefits and opportunities be shared equitably. So as we're thinking about, for example, the offshore wind industry and the huge billions of dollars that state and federal government are, are going to be using to, to help that that sector grows so that we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions at scale. Ooh, we we are and 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 the end result better be inclusion of a much more diverse workforce in cities like New Bedford and Bridgeport and New London and New Haven, all these port towns that um, have struggled economically and are more diverse than uh, than other places in the region. If at the end of the day we don't see workforce development diverse. Because of these investments, we, you know, shame on us. Uh, we will have missed a huge opportunity. So sharing those benefits, those opportunities is a huge part of creating environmental justice. And, you know, sort of following up on what David just shared, I, I think we think of Brown in the Green Space as an environmental justice organization that has roots. But we really focus a lot more on the economic justice and social justice issues. Because that's a line of what, a lot of what I heard when I was working for David you know, had, you know, mass DP doing environmental justice going all around the Commonwealth, talking about climate change and greenhouse gases. What people, what I, what I typically heard was we need jobs. <laughs> we need better education. We need affordable housing, affordable transportation, you know, access to healthy food, the police to stop harassing us. And I, I got it, you know, as a you know black man living in America, uh, but also as a environmental engineer and a public sermon, I'm going, hey, these things aren't mutually exclusive. You know, we can solve some of these problems at the same time. They're really good paying green jobs. Uh, they're business opportunities in this climate tech environment. And I think there is also, you know, how can we make sure that technology that we need in underserved communities is getting there? And so, to me, that's the difference between, you know, David was talking about environmental justice, which I do see as the bad stuff, the brownfield, mm -hmm. the pollution, the asthma. How do we keep that stuff out of our neighborhoods? But I think the two other definitions I think of are climate justice and energy justice. And number more, food justice, you, I can sort of go on and on, but I'll talk about climate justice and energy justice. Climate justice is really just recognition that all these things that are happening, I would say almost both domestically and internationally, are happening to the least of us or the the, mo the most vulnerable. So if I think on an international stage, I think I'm, my wife is actually from Barbados and their uh, leader, Mia Motley, she's amazing on the amazing. international stage yeah. Yeah. because she's saying, hey, we're out here, this tiny little island nation, this is this is gonna get us, you know, and, and get these small nations, island nations, it's, it's impacting us. But if I think about that domestically, Katrina, Maria, like who who got impacted? You know, who was who was in the, you know, Superdome, you know, after Katrina? Who's was just at, you know, the Puerto Ricans who just were lost. And and we see that not just those two, there are a whole lot of others as we think about uh, the climate issues. And it's not just sea level rise and storm surge. A lot of it is around heat. You know, we we, we people are living in urban areas where there's no no tree cover. You know, we had a great learning here uh, out in, you know, Central Mass in Worcester. You know, when we had the Asian longhorn beetle, uh, you know, infestation, we saw, man, not having tree cover makes a difference. 
you you feel it. You know, you feel it in your pocketbook because your energy costs go up, but you feel it, you know, as well, you know, just your quality of life. You can't be out if there is no shade. And and shade can 20 degrees, 30 degrees delta. Uh, that, that's huge. And so that's climate justice. So the people who are paying the biggest price in these climate issues as we're heating up the earth are typically underserved folks. And then the last one is energy justice. And, you know, I got into this space coming out of business school because I knew there was a huge energy environmental nexus, but they can be mutually exclusive. If we fix all the, you know, if David could wave his, you know, EPA region one, one and get rid of all of the environmental issues, we still have an energy problem uh, in this country and energy, you know, even if we take away the environmental pieces of it, you know, why, why do rich people and you know, Cambridge just get to have the, the Teslas and the EVs. And when gas is $5 a gallon, that's hurting. That's, that's hurting people it, it, when we don't have any, you know, and I, and I love the tea. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get, get on the tea, but you know, it's, it, it adds us ups and downs, but in a lot of places there is no tea. And so there is no, there is no option. And so you have to have it. And so the, the poorest of us have to, you know, are paying the most. It's, it's expensive to be poor in America, which is, which is crazy. Uh, as you, the richer you get, the easier it gets. And so we're putting the burden on, on us, uh, you know, black and brown and low moderate income. And even with some of the policies that we have, if we look at, and I'll, I will move on, but if we look at the, you know, system benefit charges going to our utilities, everybody pays in, but not everybody is pulling out of mass aid. Typically, the richer, you know, communities in the suburbs can take advantage of those dollars, whereas the poor communities can't. I think my good friend Mary Wambui Cope, who's at the Planning Office of Urban Affairs, she's up in Lowell, and she gave a statistic, and you know, she said for every dollar, and I can't remember where she got it from, but for every dollar put in, Lowell gets like sixty-six cents back. But like, and I can't remember if it was Needham or Wellesley or Newton. Pick one of those. She's like, they get a dollar and six cents back. So they're getting, they're getting more than they put in and the other places aren't getting it because of all these barriers, you know, they don't own. So it's, it's only the landlord or even if they do own it's old housing stock or they'll do or knob and tube wiring or asbestos. So there are all these things that they have to deal with before they can even take advantage. And so to me, that's, that's not fair. And we need to make sure we're doing something to accelerate these advances in our neighborhoods. And so you're talking about the Mass Safe program, which is something that in Massachusetts you can, you know, you can get somebody to come out to your house, take a look at your installation, give you some efficient light bulbs, things like that. It's a program that the state runs. And I just want to make sure, you know, for non-Massachusetts yeah. listeners, you kind of yeah. get a picture for mm -hmm. what that program is. And I think it relates a little bit to something I just passed through a headline um yesterday that there are top five states that utilize FEMA's BRIC funding, which is funding that goes um, mm -hmm. disaster, I think it's disaster recovery, or along those lines are, you know, like the wealthiest states and they get like the vast majority of this funding. So the state of Washington, um, but then the states who need it the most, like Mississippi, aren't even using the money that's been set aside for them. And that speaks to they don't have people who can do the grant writing. They don't have the resources to to pull that together. Somewhat, they also don't have a political environment that might want to use that money. But at the same time, they still need more resources there to even mm -hmm. take advantage of some of this grant funding. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and you, you've um, 
in the last, uh, you know, whatever minutes you've talked, uh, Carrie, you talked about the magic wand, and you just mentioned, Anne, uh, states or organizations that don't have capacity. So could I yeah. could I talk a minute about a magic wand and the issue of capacity? Um, you know, it's an extraordinary time that we're in, and, and I feel incredibly grateful that I'm working for the federal government and the Biden-Harris administration. And I'm part of a large team of um, EPA, Department of Energy, Housing and Urban Development, um, uh, et cetera, that are implementing the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act, which between the two of them, it's equivalent in terms of infrastructure spending on essentially what happened in the 50s with the highways and in the New Deal in the 30s. Um, in terms of infrastructure. So pretty remarkable. And let me just tell you one of these little magic wands that we have. Um, one of them, it, it's called, or, or two of them. One's called the um, Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, which is setting up $20 billion of, you could think of them as you know financial institutions or green banks or climate banks, whose job it is to get money into into low-income and disadvantaged communities by statute. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Almost a, two-thirds of the money by statute has to go to these communities. And then there's a climate pollution reduction grants, which are going to go to the states. That's another $5 billion. And then there's the Solar for All program, which is $7 billion, also designed to go to low-income and disadvantaged communities. But here's the difficulty, and somewhat along the lines, Anne, of what you were saying about the FEMA funding, is that it's precisely the communities that we're, we're trying to get the funding to that have the least capacity to apply for it and implement it and deploy and all of those kinds of things. So here's one of the ways that we're trying to address that. There's a whole other group of funding opportunities um, in the range of hundreds of billions of dollars. So we're talking really big dollars here. I mean, this is not, this is like huge or hundreds of millions of dollars, sorry. I often get my Bs and Ms mixed up here because these numbers are so huge. And these dollars are going to a whole range of technical support programs. So one of them is called um, the Thriving Communities Technical Assistance Centers. Every region in every EPA region in the country will have at least one and there'll be a several others. And the whole idea of them is that a community that doesn't have the capacity, an NGO, um, can contact this technical assistance center and say, hey, we've heard that there's lots and lots of money for solar or for electric vehicles, et cetera, or for heat pumps. Can you help us get access to it? And then the technical assistance center will help that organization apply for the money, manage the money, try to identify, well, if it's not EPA, maybe Department of Energy has some money, maybe housing and urban development. So it's one of these great all of government kinds of approaches. Will it, will it be perfect? No. Are there huge trust gaps, right? There are many communities and organizations, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, who don't trust EPA, who don't trust the federal government because we have failed them in the past. And if they've tried to apply for federal funding in the past, it's been complicated and overwhelming and, you know, et cetera. So we're hoping to turn that tide and um, provide the kind of technical support that a community, not top down from EPA, but a community can say, okay, wow, we've got a lot of triple deckers in our community and the, the best response, the best thing we need from a triple decker is solar on the roof and, you know, uh, heat pumps in every on every floor. I don't know. I'm making that up. I'm not an expert. But then these grants will help aggregate that information and, and get the right um, grant funding or investments from these greenhouse gas reduction fund enterprises to get them in the field in a way that's never happened before at a scale and a speed that's never happened. Yeah. And just to follow up on that, um, from the Men's Clean Energy Center, 
running the green space, we actually had some fun uh, do one of the last um, sort of rollouts to do a little bit of what uh, David was talking about. Or how do we help community groups? Because that's what we see. Like community-based organizations, really small nonprofits, advocacy groups, like they're oftentimes just struggling to make ends meet. They're overworked, underpaid. You know, sometimes the bureaucracy of federal government is a lot. And so not really being set up to that. So we're helping out doing that. Another thing, uh, David talked about their sister agency, the Department of Energy. Uh, we pulled together a group of stakeholders in uh, on the sort of north coast um, near Lawrence, Mass. And we have a DOE community LEAP grant. And so we're one of 20 communities across the country, uh, and it's not coming with money, but it's coming with technical assistance from the Department of Energy and the National Renewable Energy Lab or NREL. And what we're looking at in Lawrence is literally, you know, decarbonization, electrification, transportation and mobility. And as we talked, they wanted the same thing. How do we take advantage of these funds that are coming? You know, how do we look at that? Uh, and this is in a what we would call a quintessential or the quintessential environmental justice community in Massachusetts uh, because it has a large immigrant or minority population uh, because of a lot of the, you know, disinvestment or, you know, sort of the manufacturing from those mill towns going elsewhere, uh, you know, lower income. And because of the high immigrant population, a lot of, you know, English language isolation and so we see that as sort of quintessential. And from a fossil fuel perspective, you know, this is a community where people literally and figuratively die. In the Columbia gas explosion a little while ago, somebody actually passed. And so we're trying to go, hey, let's, how do we move away and think about decarbonizing? And really the biggest thing, how do we think about reducing energy burden in our communities? So, Carrie, I know that Browning the Green Space, as you mentioned before, really focuses on economics, the economics of the green space and how do you get more people into the jobs and things like that. Is some of this funding from the federal government going to help invigorate some of that from your perspective? Have you seen people kind of take a second look at, hey, I could potentially work in this space or have you have you made inroads in that area? Yeah, so I so I think it, as as we talk about the funding piece, you know, if I talk about our three areas, so creating jobs, building wealth, reducing energy burden, those are all we can go and talk about dollars. So jobs. So how can we create good paying green jobs and sort of combat what David was talking about before, gentrification and displacement. People should be able to, you know, if they work in the city of Boston, they should be able to live in the city of Boston. And that's that is not the case and you know, and uh, a lot of the times. And so their jobs from offshore wind jobs and there are some of them here and a lot of them coming to solar jobs that are already here, geothermal things. I know Eversource just did a project in uh, Framingham where they're doing some, you know, you know, district, you know, geothermal and different things uh, too. You know, if, if we think about just the housing, you know, as David talked about it, we got really old housing stock. And this is a great, here in the Northeast, this is a great test lab for it because it's cold, you know, it's really cold. It's, it's increasingly getting really warm in the summertime. We've got really, really old housing stock, like, like 1900s, 19-teens housing stock that is wooden and needs to be, you know, insulated. And we've got like density. Like I actually, I live in Somerville, the densest community, you know, in the Commonwealth. And so... 
if we can figure this out, this is a great place to do it uh, and to make this stuff happen really quickly. So uh, that brings jobs, but that also brings, you know, people typically don't work for Fortune 100 or 500 companies. You know, that's, that's why we have Small Business Saturday after Black Friday. Most businesses are small businesses. And so if we can have more small businesses led by black and brown folk and people of color, we think they will hire more people. We also actually think this ha happens to allow us to do the conversion or uptake in those communities better. Or, you know, David was talking about trust. Man, the solar spaces, man, the trust is, is not good because there are like, like used car salesman types, you know, going out and saying, hey, we'll put solar on your roof and people not understanding it. And some people get, you know, caught up and it's worse than it could have been. And now we've just thrown it off for our whole neighborhood because they heard what happened Mr. Johnson. And they're like, I don't trust you. But I think, what if it was somebody from the neighborhood who knew Mr. Johnson? No, Mr. Johnson knew them when they, they were a teenager. And so, you know, what what if they're doing this work in those communities? We think that makes a difference. What if they're speaking the same language? Mm -hmm. Going back to Lawrence, people talking to people and, you know, most of the people speak Spanish and, you know, they don't have interpreters. And this goes back to the capacity piece that David was talking about. We've got nonprofits who are helping to translate, mm -hmm. but they're not being compensated. And I think about, you know, our groundwork, Lawrence, you know, or someone doing work, but that money should be flowing to them so that they can do some of that work. I think about uh, Abel Vargas is on our board. You know, he's with Valley Home Insulation. Like he's a, that one of those types of companies where, hey, he can have crews doing the insulating work. He knows the neighborhood. He knows the thing. And he can, you know, let's get him three, four, five more trucks out on the road because we're, I'm, I'm concerned we're doing too many. I love podcasts, but I, I would rather have fewer podcasts and more <laughs> More, more homes being retrofit. Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> so, David, let's talk about Justice 40. Justice 40 is this kind of overarching initiative by the president yeah. that says all of the kind of funding that we're talking about, climate-related funding, energy-related funding, environmental-related funding, 40% of it should go to low-income and disadvantaged communities. Now, for some programs that's baked into the statute, like I was mentioning in the in the Inflation Reduction Act, there are a number of programs like Solar for All, $7 billion, that's supposed to go all to low-income and disadvantaged communities. But then we have other programs like, like our uh, state revolving loan fund programs, which is on the water side, which d directs funding to communities that need to upgrade their drinking water or their wastewater treatment plants and things like that. And so we're trying to figure out how do we how do we direct those funds again to those communities that are in most need of those uh, of those kinds of funds so we don't have another Flint, we don't have another Jackson. And um, and so, you know, this is happening government-wide. So Department of Energy is uh, tasked to do that. And uh, Department of Transportation is tasked to do that. And, um, and again, the whole question of righting wrongs is just amazing. Uh, that we're taking it so seriously. So I read recently about Secretary Buttigieg in transportation looking at some of these um, highways that were built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that cut right through uh, communities of color, destroyed the communities. We have that here too. Um, and looking at, okay, can we move those highways or what mitigation can we do? So I think, you know, Justice 40 
is a really great framework that that we're using to try to make sure that the funding goes to those who are most in need and to right past wrongs. And and one thing to add on uh, what you know David just shared is you know Justice Forty pretty much says forty percent of the, uh, the benefits from mm-hmm. those funds coming from you know infrastructure investment and jobs act, inflation reduction act, chips and science act. They're supposed to you know, benefit our most underserved targeted communities. And so one thing we're trying to do as we think about that economic piece is, you know, there's a jobs piece, but we also talk about, you know, the jobs I was talking about, the good job on the, you know, creating wealth or building wealth, there's mm-hmm. an opportunity for vendors and contractors and color. Mm-hmm. So Justice Forty doesn't necessarily say that. Right. And say all that money needs to flow mm-hmm. through black and brown vendors. It says it needs to support. And so I think for that same reasons that we were talking about some of the things with the different states and uh, the different piece and what I was talking about, um, you know, in terms of mass save, you know, I think David was talking about some of the FEMA funds or you talking FEMA and that is similar big incumbents actually have it a little bit easier. So some of the things we're trying to do is how can we make sure that we have more contractors of color and small business owners ready? And so we have a program called uh, Access uh, which is advancing contractors of color and energy for sust- you know uh, sustainable success, uh, and so part of that is going. How do we take a somebody who knows what they're doing in the trade? You know, a master electrician. You know, who may be making you know a couple hundred thousand dollars in a large you know general contractor. You know, here in Boston, that's like a Suffolk or a, a turn of construction. What if they can get a you know bid for two million and hire three or four people. Mm-hmm. We want to do that. And so we've run a program. We're in our second year of this Excel program that we actually use funding from the you know Innovation Incubator or National Renewable Energy Lab, Wells Fargo, Mass EC, um, you know, South Coast Community Foundation, South Coast Wind, one of the developers to to sort of seed us with funding so we can actually go and train people uh, because we need people who are ready to do this work, whether it's plumbers, electricians, HVAC folks, you know, whatever. Uh, we need more of them. Uh, and I could just pick on electricians. They get something like 35,000 electricians we need in Massachusetts, 35,000. So, it, but we need to get them in there because they work across all of the spectrums of everything that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the solar and the wind, it's the built environment, it's the, you know, HVAC and rewiring homes, but it's also the EV and mobility and transportation. We need electricians in all of those spaces. Uh, but, you know, to become an electrician, it's a five-year mm. apprenticeship process. How are we getting more of our young folk in our communities into those finance? And how are we also incentivizing those companies to go and go and get them? Because you need sort of a letter of intent or you need a job on the back end of an apprenticeship. So maybe we can wrap up with this this quick a, a final thought here. So David's got a lot of money to give away through EPA and the government. <laughs> Carrie's got a lot of people he wants to hire and get trained, and and um, there's a lot of of money that's getting funneled into um, or wants to be funneled into communities of color or underrepresented communities. But there's maybe a discrepancy there. If if you're a community and you 
might benefit from funding, but you don't know anything about how to get it. Even if there is a technical assistance center, even if there is a Browning the Breeding Space organization, if you don't know about that organization, how do you leverage the benefit? So final thoughts on how do we actually make the connection between the funding, the resources, the Browning the Green Space type organizations, the so-called Tic Tacs from mm -hmm. you know the federal government side to the communities who have no idea that they could benefit. Uh, as David was saying, you know, the greenhouse gas, you know, the you know, green greenhouse gas reduction fund, you know, that's twenty-seven billion dollars, as David said, and there was a big chunk of that, like sixteen or twenty million of that, was going to probably go to like two or three entities that are going to do that work. So I, I think those just went in a couple of weeks ago. And so we'll find out sometime. I, you know, I've got a little bit of a sense of who they are and I, you know, and, and so I'm optimistic, some concerns, but still optimistic that, you know, a lot of these are CDFIs, community development finance institutions, where they're going to grab it. And so they're trying to be connected to the communities. And then there's this missing green piece uh, because, you know, city of Vice aren't typically doing all this green work. And so I think they're going to be reaching out and I think there are going to be connections. I actually just, my good friend, uh, Dr. Jalan White Newsom, who I know him back from some of my Texas days, she's running the White House CEQ Center for Environmental Quality. Um, uh, David, we were just talking about, I just traded some emails with Jahi Wise, you know, who's working on, you know, the GGRF. And so we're going to, we're, we're, we're going to, from the ground, try to go up to where the money is and try to understand. And what I'm hoping is David's going to say, I'm not trying to put words in his mouth, but I'm hoping they're going to be trying to come down and meet us where we are too. So somewhere in the middle, we can make sure that we don't have leakage, that we don't have waste that we don't have this gift because we need to make sure that that money gets to people and we need to figure out, you know, what are some conduits? Because even from those three, they're, they're going to need more conduits to get oh. that money out really quickly. And so we're having things. I was just at Roxbury Community College yesterday talking about, okay, how do we get and <laughs> make sure this money gets to Roxbury? Uh, you know, because people know it's coming, but similarly, there's, you know, yeah. information asymmetry. Yeah. And so how are we making sure that people are aware? And and similarly, how are we making sure that people know? How are we doing outreach and awareness? And a lot of this stuff, unfortunately, sometimes is not clean programs. And so that's a lot of what Brian the Green Space has been trying to do is how do we connect the dots? And how do we make everybody greater than the sum of our parts by getting rid of that information asymmetry, by smoothing out rough places by saying, you need to talk to this person, you need to talk to this person. Uh, and we're, we're doing what we can do. I wish we had more support, more resources, more people, but you know, this is like that starfish thing. You you throw that one starfish on the beach back in, that, that's, that starfish loves you. We might better be able to do everything, but we're gonna do what we can do. Wow, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I could say that any better than Kerry just said it. He, he hit all the points and, and um, you know, I could, I can say an answer that I think is is where our intentions are and what the what the statutes say, but the evidence will be how we can perform, right? Because we're doing exactly what Kerry is saying we need to be doing. We're reaching down. So there's you know the the technical assistance centers and a whole host of others are trying to reach out, connect with 
groups that have not had a seat at the table, help them understand, even learn what's going on. So getting the word out, as Carrie said, understand the process, understand the opportunities that they have. So they're all those kind of centers. And by the way, Department of Energy is doing a similar kind of thing. And our staff, so we, EPA never had a real robust environmental justice division, and now we do. So in Washington, there's an air office, a water office, a Superfund office. We now have an environmental justice and an external civil rights office, and each region is building up their teams. So um, we've hired like 10 new staff, which is unheard of um, at EPA for one new division in a, within a year. And those staff are tasked of developing the relationships, building the trust. And I got to say, it's working. I was at a um, at an event in New London yesterday that was about lead pipe, lead, lead service line removal. So it wasn't about climate, but um, we had our environmental justice staff member there and like local, you know, state rep, Folks from the mayor's office ran over her and gave her a hug. They were so happy to see her. Oh, thank you. The meeting you were at last week was fantastic. You've been connecting with our community members. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary for the Environmental Protection Agency, a big federal agency, to be crafting those relationships. And we've done it on a small scale, sort of pilot programs, but now we have to like ramp it up. So that's the intent. We have the statutes and the funding to get there. And, um, you know, people like Carrie have to hold our feet to the fire and make sure we do what we say we're going to do and make sure what the intent of Justice 40 is and what the Inflation Reduction Act and, you know, all of these, you know, laws and, and et cetera that we're trying to get done. So, you know, we've set high expectations and, you know, we have to be held accountable. So I'm, I'm hoping uh, in a year from now, uh, when, uh, you know, if we do a, a rehash of this uh, podcast, <laughs> Kerry is going to ask me what we've done and, and uh, he's the, you know, he's going to make sure that um, I'm reporting on some big successes in this space. And I'm hoping I can report that. It's my, it's like the highest priority I have as, as the regional administrator. And I know that the administrator of EPA, Michael Regan, it's highest priority for him as well. Yeah, and I'll just add on that. I mean, region one, you know, with all of the resources that we have and like the, the policy heft and the things that we're doing, I, we should be leading on this. And I think we, and we have a lot of people who have come from from this region who are in D.C., I think even on the DOE side, a number of the folks who were, yeah. I think of Shalanda Baker. Shalanda Baker, yeah. And mm -hmm. uh -huh. uh, Ruth George. Like, I, I know a bunch of folks yeah. I, I know personally who are mm -hmm. in this fight uh, and along with, you know, EPA and Michael Regan and 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 everyone, uh, it's 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 exciting times. I yeah, mean, but there's a lot at stake, mm -hmm. uh, and we really need to just make sure that you know our whole thing about running the green space is we everybody needs to be in this fight. We cannot leave. This cannot be a pale male steel fight. <laughs> It can't be just old white guys like David. I love David. Uh, he's great, but it, we 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 we, we got to have everybody. You know? You're hundred percent right. Hundred percent right. Everybody working on this thing. Yep. Well, thank you both for taking the time out to do this recording. I really appreciate it, and I I always have one final question for everybody, all podcast guests. Y'all get the same question. So, um, what is capturing your attention this week? And it does not have to be related to our conversation. It can be anything. Uh, so, David, what is capturing your attention this week? Every year, EPA has this big process to honor um, staff. It's a big national awards. Every region has many awards. I mean, it's a it's a place for us to step back and honor the work that our staff does. And so, we had the um, the the awards event this morning, 
And that's where you get to hear all the phenomenal work. And oh my goodness, just to revel in the public service of the folks who've dedicated their careers to working in this space, the kind of effort they put in, the expertise, the smarts, the communication, the love and passion and compassion that they bring to their work every day. So inspiring, so inspiring. I feel so grateful that I am part of an organization that uh, their ethos is public service in the way that it is here. So that that I've been kind of buzzing over that all day. That's great. Uh, that was this morning. Carrie, what's capturing your attention? This There's so much going on. I'm wearing so many different hats, but I would say from uh, Browning and Green Space perspective, we've got a board retreat uh, next Monday. So I think gearing up for that, you know, we're three years old and three years young. We, a lot of stuff has happened, uh, but now we're starting to think about uh, being even more strategic and, you know, especially with everything coming on. And so I'm excited uh, about that. Uh, I'm excited about some RFPs that are out uh, around supporting um, founders uh, and especially, you know, how can we support founders of color? Because that's, and that's all another issue. If we just talk tech and finance, just take the green piece out of it. There's a gap, you know, or there, there is a, you know, a, uh, there, there, there's a bias and pattern matching. Once again, the older white guys tend to have the money. How can we get that money spread more evenly? You know, it's it's a travesty. Not even talking race, it's just talking gender. That you know, used to be three to four percent of funding went to women. Now it's like less than two percent. Clearly, there are more than two percent women out there, and, and the smartest people I know are women. And so this is there is a mismatch, and then those numbers get worse as you say one mm -hmm. percent. African-American. And now if you happen to be an African-American woman, it's like, like it's, we're not, when I say everybody needs to be at the table, we've got to fix that space too. So I'm excited about that. Actually with one of my couple colleagues and especially one of our partners at Greentown Labs, we've joined forces to actually sort of build a venture capital fund to do that. So I'm excited about that too. So excited about growing Brown in the green space and leaning in even more to this fight, but also excited about um, you know, beyond the technical assistance, the consulting, the coaching, all of that piece, you know, I'm excited about, you know, hopefully in the next year being able to write checks. Writing checks is always a great thing, isn't it? <laughs> well, thank you both for being here again. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's great to have you both. And um, I'm sure we'll hear a lot from you guys in the future. Appreciate awesome. your time. Thank you so much, Anne. Yeah, and uh, great here. to be with you, Carrie, yeah, as always. Likewise. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. David Cash and Carrie Bowie. The once-in-a-generation investment in clean energy and environmental justice available through EPA right now is an unprecedented opportunity. As Carrie and David pointed out in our episode, there are profound connections between economic, social, and environmental justice and their collective impact and influence on environmental work. You'll find links from the discussion in the show notes, as well as a link back to our website, ebcne.org. Please like, rate, and review this podcast on whatever platform you're listening, because your interaction with the podcast on the platforms helps get the word out more widely. The podcast is taking a winter break, giving us here at EBC a little bit of a breather, and we will be back in January with some great episodes from EBC's 2023 Ascending Leader Award winners. They'll be talking about their careers, successes, tips and tricks for those looking to enter the industry. It'll be a very good lesson for anybody who's interested in joining the energy and environmental industry or who has just joined the industry. Myself and my team wish you all health and happiness through the end of the year, and we will see you in 2024.
Energy Environment Economy is a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. Thank you to EBC Administrative Coordinator Stephanie Sukar for editing the episode and managing the branding and marketing, and to EBC Fall Intern Hayden Adair for his research and wordsmithing. Music is only forward by Roman Senec Music 2023.